Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them, treat them harshly. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever your task, put yourselves into it, as done for the Lord, and not for your masters, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That puts a different angle on work. And so we're going to follow through some thoughts on that aspect of work and what we're doing in work. And I know there's a very wide range of works and employment represented here today. And in some cases, no employment. It's all work. Chloe is a student. She's been told that God will use her after she leaves university. She's excited by that prospect because she's been told that the real mission will be after she leaves university. But she's not really thinking about how God might work through her now, except in the evangelistic conversations she holds. Ed works in a factory. He's bored. He's been praying for a new job for two years. He wants to do something for God. It's, he's a worship leader. He thinks his mission is somewhere else. Because he thinks his mission is somewhere else, He's not thinking about how he could be fruitful for God where he is. Chrissy has just turned 60. She's involved in her local church, but she's had arthritis for over 30 years, painful, limiting, confidence sapping, and a good amount of time that Chris has to spend at home. She needs hydrotherapy sessions at the local swimming pool. She hasn't been thinking about how God might use her and want to work through her. Got the slide? That's what we do. Let's quick next slide there. I'm going to, those are quotations from a book called uh, Fruitfulness in the Frontline, which is actually the uh, predecessor series to what we're doing here on the Sundays. The Sundays kind of encapsulates that, and our house group are following through this series at the minute. Being fruitful on the front line. The front line is where we meet with people, with other people. So one day, And the other day, Chloe discovered that God could work through her at university. In evangelistic conversations, yes, yes, but also in her seminars, in writing essays, and in sharing a flat and finding creative ways to help friends get to the lectures they really needed to get to. 
head one day realized that if God wasn't giving him a new job, he's going to have to do something about the one right where he was. And so he began to see what that might be. He started to get in a bit earlier before the shift and look for ways to bless and help people, befriend them and pray with them and for them. And over time, he saw God working in the factory. Chris realized that she had a front line as well, and that it was with the people she met in the hydrotherapy pool. The people she had gotten over years, but she had something significant in common with them. And she actually got into the pool with them, people that God had uniquely gifted her to approach and touch. So her illness no longer made her a victim, it gave her a ministry. Now, there are people of different ages who all wanted to serve God, but they feel they didn't have a front line. And so this sermon and this talk and the, 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 the topic we've been looking at are all about that, to challenge what do we do and how do you value what you do? Now, it's interesting, and I knew this would happen, when you ask some people, what do you do for a living? And they say, I'm a teacher. Uh, they might say, I'm, a, I'm an army officer. Uh, I'm a, uh, let's see, what, what else have I got down here? Something else, you know, I'm, I'm retired. You're not answering the question. You're not telling us what you do. You're telling us what you think you are. You're letting your work define you. No, 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 no. We define the work. True work shapes us, molds us. And any of you who have been to army training and been told to stand in line and shut your mouth up and march that way will learn what it means to be molded sometimes painfully. But that's all part of the game. We all learn, no matter what role and job we're in, we learn discipline to be under authority, to obey directions and orders, to learn and grow in that process, to be able at some stage to give orders, to manage others with compassion, with strength, with discipline, and with honesty. All of that is part of the process of growing up. So what we do is not merely an accidental thing while we're trying to get on being an evangelist or a, a discipler or a pastor, no, they are all part of a whole world. There is no big division between the sacred here in church on Sundays and the secular Monday to Friday. That is a false chasm, a dichotomy, if I use the proper word, that you introduce into your own life that does not exist in God's view because he created everything. And so that's what we learned from this, Colossians 3. Uh, can we have the, um, uh, is it the next slide? I think it's the next one. Yes, please. In the passage I've just read, it lists instructions for various people. It lists wives and husbands, what you should do, children and fathers, and then it lists slaves, and in the next chapter, masters. Where do you find all these people in one place. You can shout it out. Children at work? Yes, it depends, yes, yes. Where do you find all six people in one place all the time? Not nowadays, perhaps, but think New Testament. Answer the home. Husbands, wives, children, parents, employers, employees, masters, slaves, as it was in those days. And 
slavery is certainly something that we feel very uncomfortable with. We think of the 17th to the 19th centuries and the horrible abuse and the destruction and the, uh, the, the murder and the horrible things that went on. And we think of the slave industry that we still see from Eastern Europe, from Africa, and from other parts of the world into Britain today. But when the Bible was written, slavery was not at all like, yes, it could be on occasions, but that was not the norm in the Roman world and certainly not in the Hebrew world. If you run a farm and everybody else around you runs a farm in an agrarian society and there's a famine one day, what do you do? You can't feed your children. They're going to die. You have no choice. So the eldest lad there, he's pretty good and strong. You then see if another family might take him on. Now, the term that we would have used, they would have used then was slavery. But it's not what we call slavery. It was actually a form of employment. And that way, the family could survive. They could gain money. And that way, this child could grow to be very important. And such a person was Joseph. His brothers sold him into slavery and threw him away. But actually, when he arrived in Egypt, Potiphar, who was the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, brought him, bought him, and brought him in. And Joseph was diligent. He was authentic in everything he did. He was honest and showed great integrity, so much so that Potiphar put him in charge of every single thing he had. He could leave the house. He could disappear because Joseph became the manager of everything. Now, that shows what good work is about because it says in the Bible that his master saw that the Lord was with him. This guy had something about him that brought discipline to his work, quality to his work, and life to his work. He treated it seriously. Now remember this, Joseph couldn't form prayer meetings. He couldn't have an evangelistic seminar at the end of every day and bring all the uh, workers in. Joseph couldn't uh, uh, evangelize the whole place. He wasn't allowed to. He was a Hebrew. But what he could do was show through his work, the Lord was with him. And others saw that. And so that's something we need to learn. Next slide. Because in doing so, as the Bible reminds us, someone skilled in their work, he shall stand before kings. And Joseph's life towards the end of it was the one in the Egyptian garments in the middle with his brothers around him. He became the prime minister of Egypt in charge of all its resources. That is what faithfulness and diligence does. But also... God was using him and through him doing mighty things, and others recognized it. So the whole passage here about employers and employees, if we use the terms uh, as we understand them today, means an awful lot to us. Dorothy Sayers put it this way. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Perhaps we're starting to see that everything we do, everything is under God's control and gives him glory or otherwise. Elaine was a head teacher who turned around two failing primary schools in a tough area of Glasgow. That's quite an extraordinary achievement. She transformed the lives of hundreds of children and their families, and indeed the communities they were in. She brought hope, 
dignity and joy and open up a different future for hundreds of Glasgow children. But she didn't think she'd done anything for God. She couldn't see that she had because in her mind, fruitfulness had been confined to direct evangelism. That is, if you don't know the term, just telling others about Jesus. And if it didn't involve an evangelistic conversation, it wasn't fruit. And Elaine was not alone in any group or any church. Lots of Christians don't believe that they're being fruitful for God because they define fruitfulness too narrowly as just being out telling others the gospel. There is more than that because we do so through our lives and our behavior and our work. But I want to give a cautionary tale. Clearly, the lives of Joseph and Elaine and others caused people to look and ask the questions. Why is she so good? Why does she take such a keen personal interest? When the boss isn't there, she's still in on time. She's still working hard. She's still doing things to that standard. Why is that so? And those questions help. However, we must be careful that we do not abuse it. I'm going to tell you the story of Sarah. Sarah, you may have read, is all over the papers, uh, was a nurse in a hospital in Dartford which had an intensive care unit for cancer patients. She worked in that ward, but she made a mistake one day medically, and so she was put off that and put on to other duties. Sarah was a bubbly, lively Christian from a Pentecostal church and was very keen at sharing her faith anywhere she went. And she was a lovely person to get on with and brilliant in the church. However, the patients that she was dealing with were vulnerable, often elderly, and with pain and with an operation coming up, were not in a position to put up much argument. And she would invite the patients because she had to conduct the questionnaires. And as she went through the questionnaires, there was a question about what religion are you? So she picked up on that and she would use the opportunity to try and pray with them. And eventually she was cautioned not to push it too hard. For one candidate, about to, a patient about to undergo bowel surgery, she said that he would have a better chance of survival if he prayed. Well, how would you know that? Prayer doesn't necessarily mean that person has a better chance. We don't, God does know it, but we don't. And nor can we forecast the outcome of an operation. We must be very careful. She was warned by her line manager, but then she started to give patients Bibles. The Bible was returned to another member of staff. And a week later, the complaints department received many complaints because in some cases, uh, she read the script wrongly. A person said, for religion, open-minded. Now, if you speak the English language as a native, you will know the English never mean what they say. There are loads of instances, but we live in an area where we have downs. There's the South Downs and the North Downs, and we've got a thing called Salisbury Plain. Now, those of you who come from elsewhere and English is your second language might discover that downs are actually ups. They're hills. What 
nonsense do you have in a language that creates that impression? But that's English for you. And when a person responds in a, 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 in a questionnaire to say, what's your religion? If they don't put Christian, you know they're not interested. If they put open-minded, you know what they mean. They're saying, I am definitely not a Christian, but I like to think of myself as a good person. Well, with this person, she grabbed her hand, squeezed it tight, prayed out loud, very loudly and very long, and then started singing the Lord's Prayer, and I invited him to do the same in the ward. Clearly, that person uh, put in a complaint, and eventually, Sarah was fired. It went to an employment tri tribunal, and they said, justly so. And then it went to an appeal. And many of us who heard it on the TV were horrified that the possibility that if you pray with someone, that's an offense. But actually, it's the manner. It's the forcing. Just because you have a captive audience does not mean that is an opportunity to share the gospel. You have to win that and win it individually, not necessarily take the chance over a crowd. And so she uh, made the appeal, but that was turned down. She did go back into nursing, I'm delighted to say, but I hope that she'd learned the lesson that if we are approaching people and wish to pray and see an opportunity, we share it gently. And if they hold back, we back off. We need to be careful. We must follow the example of our master. When Jesus went, what surprises me about the New Testament in the Gospels, it's amazing this. When Jesus went, he preached to thousands upon thousands. In some cases, had to get out in a rowing boat some distance so they wouldn't come and crowd him out. I'm sure it was more than six foot deep of water he was in to make sure they couldn't uh, come and swamp the boat. But what amazes me in the Gospels are the number of individual conversations that are recorded with Jesus. Some, like Nicodemus and the woman at the well, on their own. Some in small groups. And by name, many people are mentioned. Because that's Jesus' approach, one by one. The other thing that Jesus did, which is remarkable, was this. There was a rich church who was a leader in the community, a young ruler. And he came to Jesus and said, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and says, and he loved him. He showed compassion, and he looked through him, and then he per gently persuaded him to try and see, in his life, where were the obstacles to that inherit, eternal life? And he was very rich, and he loved his money, and Jesus, of course, could see that. And so, towards the end, he raised the question, go, sell everything you have, and come follow me. Now, that was a test. It wasn't necessary to sell everything, but it was a test to see what he put first in his life. And would he put Jesus first or his own wealth? And it says that the young man turned away and walked away. What would you have done? I'll tell you if it would be me. And I chased after him and said, no, 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 I think you've got the wrong end of the stick. No, 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 what shall a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? No, no, you don't know. Jesus watched him walk down the street and stayed on his spot. David Livingston said, Christ is the perfect gentleman. He never forces anyone into his kingdom. And when you ask what would Jesus do, he would not force a conversation. He would take an opportunity. We all need to learn lessons how we do it. But if you're faithful in all you do, do everything as if you're working to God, the questions will come. People will ask, What's buzzing inside your heart? What motivates you? And then the opportunity to share comes.
But let's note the cautionary uh, lessons that we can pick up. Next two slides, I think we're just finishing off here. Because the, um, what we do, the Bible gives very clear directions that whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. We're meant to focus carefully on it and not to be too distracted. And it's whatever you do. Each word bears great import. Whatever you do, it's not just the nice things that we do and the religious things we do, it's whatever. Some of you got to clean out toilets. Some of you got to look after um, patients or, or children or whatever who are the most obnoxious people on planet Earth. And why me, God? Whatever you do. Some of us have large authority and responsibility for, for in some cases, vast budgets or, or, or vast uh, um, parts of the uh, government organization. Whatever you do, we must be humble, never be arrogant, proud, selfish. We must walk as servants, no matter how high or low we sit. And so it's very careful, whatever you do, because the you is important. Only you are in that place. Do you realize that God has called you as an individual? Only you can meet the people you do. There are others bump into them from time to time, but you meet more regularly than others. You are the link between God and the people out there. And a key thing is whatever you do, not whatever you say, it's whatever you do. You show Jesus, then they can ask, and then you say. And uh, so the next uh, one shows how Paul just brings these, and I'm just putting the thoughts together there. There's the two passages inside the bit that we've read. Twice in the passage that uh, Kitty read out to us, it says, whatever you do. Now look, look carefully at the first one. Let the message of Christ, that's the word, the logos of Christ, God's plan, dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish. Psalms, hymns, songs, spirit, and all that singing. What's that talking about? Let's call that the sort of churchy bit. But actually, it's worship. But worship doesn't mean singing. Worship means serving. That's the true essence of worship. So if you're in with Christians and you're serving one another, you, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, so it's both words and deeds, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. But look what you're doing. You're teaching each other. You're uh, admonishing that's correcting one another, all of that needs to be done for Christ. That's part of it. But the second bit is referring to the work of employees. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. You're not working for her, the queen. If you think you're in the army, you're not. There's, you're working for the king of kings. You're not working for the employer and the, the boss and the managing director and the, the board of directors and the chief executive officer. No, you're working for Jesus. That's what this passage is telling us, and that's what it encourages to recognize, because we're working for the Lord, not human masters. Why? Because the reward we see is not the pay packet. It's heaven itself and his fulfilled kingdom. And um, so, next click. Both worship and work, whatever you do. Paul writes to the Corinthians, and the third time he's written to people, and here's what he adds, is a good one. Next click. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, let me put it more bluntly than that. Once a day, twice a day, three times a day, you go into a little bathroom, and you're on your own. 
whatever you do, whether you're in the bathroom or you're in the lounge, whether you're in public or in private, when I go into the toilet, I suddenly get alone and I stare and think, right, I've just come out of a situation. God, can you work in that situation? Can you help? In other words, it's a moment for prayer, reflection, as well as the other business. Uh, it's, it's an opportunity to reflect. In other words, whatever, you, you, if you're eating, you do it for the Lord. If you're drinking, now if it gets that basic and that private, therefore what you do publicly in your work or privately in your family, everything is for the Lord. You can't just come at home the way my teenagers do, relax, throw tempers, tantrums, and, and throw their, their teddies in a corner and shout and slam the doors. Everywhere is God's, as we discovered last week, and everything we do is his in public view of the Lord. So that's what this passage reminds us, and um, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll just finish it out there. So you're on the front line, I'm on the front line. We're there by being as much as we are by doing. There was a vicar in Salisbury, uh, Bemerton Salisbury, uh, in the 16th century, 17th century. His name was um, George Herbert. And he wrote these words in a hymn. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. If done to obey thy laws, even servile labors shine. Hallowed is toil, if this the cause, the meanest work divine. A woman uh, was uh, fed up one day with her family, and so she went into the kitchen, and then she realized that she got fed up with the kitchen, and she, she thought, this isn't the right way. And so she put a notice on top of her sink which said, divine worship conducted here three times daily. That's the attitude, and that's the way we must go forward. Let me just tell you one quick story about Isabel. Isabel was uh, retired, and um, uh, she was uh, from, let me work out where it was. It was up north somewhere, and anywhere up north, I know. Uh, Gateshead. Aye, aye, way, aye, man. Sorry, Carol. Uh, and it, it was a Wednesday evening around half past eight, and there was a house group meeting, and the vicar was there, and they were going through it. And it says Isabel was a quiet lady who hadn't contributed much to the conversation before. So they were all discussing how you can be Christ on the front line, and so turning to her, he asked what she did with her time, and she looked thoughtful and said, I don't know. I've been wondering what you're talking about. I just clean the house, go to the shops, and occasionally look after the grandchildren. So I asked her, tell us more about the grandchildren. She told us she picked them up from school and that her oldest granddaughter came to Sunday dinner most weeks. Often she'd ask Isabel about church, what had happened. So Isabel would tell her about the service and the sermon. I asked her what age her grandchild was and expecting 10 years old. She was 22, 22. The one age group very few churches in the United Kingdom are managing to touch. So the conversation went on, and before long the minister realized, I'm not preaching to an elderly congregation, it's going further. And then the others in the groups listened, and they heard her talk about her grandchildren, 
And they had before prayed for her grandchildren, but didn't think much about it. Suddenly they all stopped and realized Isabel was their front line as well. So a few months later, he came to the meeting again and said to Isabel, what's going on with the grandchildren? She said, well, I don't know what's happening, but suddenly my daughter's now asking questions about faith and church. I'm in a bit of a role. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in everything to do it as for thee. Amen.